Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey, you buttheads of the past, present, and future. This is Nate Hackman currently playing Biff on Back to the Future on Broadway. And this is the Theater Podcast with Alan Seals. Hey everyone, welcome back to an all new episode of the Theater Podcast. I'm your host, Alan Seals, and this is the first of four episodes that are going to make a wonderful theater podcast takeover with the stars of Back to the Future, the musical now on Broadway. This first episode here is with Nate Hackman, who plays Biff Tannen. Next up, we have Merritt Davis Jones and Jelani Ramey, followed by Liana Hunt, and then rounding it out with Casey Likes. So make sure you follow the podcast for the next couple weeks to get all of those amazing episodes. So at the end of every one of these Back to the Future takeover episodes, I ask them some Back to the Future movie trivia. So it's interesting to see how much of the obscure trivia they knew about the movie itself before coming into the show. But anyway, without further ado, I'm just going to kick this right off. Everybody, please enjoy this episode with Nathaniel Hackman. Today's guest is an incredibly versatile actor who has held many roles alongside many of the world's greatest orchestras. He's played both Jean Valjean and Javert in Les Mis on Broadway, in addition to, of course, iconic roles like Jekyll and Hyde and Hunchback of Notre Dame. For the internationally televised BBC proms at London's Royal Hall, Royal Albert Hall, he was curly with the John Wilson Orchestra in the acclaimed production of Oklahoma. Also an opera singer, he's an alumnus of the prestigious Marola Opera Program in the San Francisco Opera and has performed with the Virginia Opera, Michigan Opera, Theater Opera, Opera Theater St. Louis, San Francisco Lyric Opera, and many others on the concert stage. He's appeared with the John Wilson Orchestra, Sinfonia of London, Hong Kong Symphony, San Francisco, San Francisco, I can't even say San Francisco, San Francisco Opera Orchestra, Springfield Symphony. Oh my God, I, I, I got to cut half of this because this will be here all day uh he's now an incredible in an an incredible non-operatic turn of events he can be seen as bad guy biff tannen in the current production of broadway's back to the future nate hackman oh my god man welcome to the theater podcast thank you so much for having me dude so you played both jean valjean and javert at the same time on broadway that's insane how did you, you just like went back and forth you know one side one side of the other yeah, uh, you know, they uh, they never, the only way I knew was uh, which costume was, was set up for me because they, nev- <laughs> they never let me wear both costumes at the same time. <laughs> well, they only showed you, it was, it was top half and bottom half. So they, right, exactly. they lifted the scrim one way or the other. So, oh my God, dude, I, I assumed, I'm so excited to get into this because I, I perhaps falsely assumed with the opera background and the international background that you were British, but no, you grew, you were born in Scottsdale, Arizona. So correct. I was born. Is that where you grew up to? Yeah. Yeah. So, so people who are familiar with the, the greater Phoenix area, uh, Scottsdale is often thought of as sort of the bougie area. It's like where most of the, the, um, the Cardinals or the, you know, the, the Diamondbacks players have houses. It's all in Scottsdale because that's fancy and there's lots of great golfing to be had there. And it's one of the one of the nicest towns for resorts in the sort of Southwest. Um, I was born in the one square mile of crappy Scottsdale. <laughs> uh, I am firmly middle class, uh, perhaps lower middle class, even the way I grew up. Um, my dad was a software engineer for Mo- Motorola, originally was, is what brought him out there. And my mom has worked in education most of her career, but um, has done many odd jobs. But for the last uh, 24 years has been an arts coordinator for a, a middle school system called Kyrene Middle School out there. And um, they both have done community theater as long as I can remember. So I, I sort of came by the, the music bug, honestly, but... Um, but yeah, definitely not British. <laughs> definitely American. <laughs> that I, w- I was going to ask where the connection came from. And it sounds like your your parents sort of pulled it in because you know uh, NFL and uh, golfing, of course, leads to you know musical theater. It's the na- <laughs> next natural progression. Um, it, but your parents, 
a software engineer and an educational administrator, where did their love for theater come in? Right. So uh, they actually met in middle school in Iowa, where they grew up, doing a production of, I'm pretty sure, uh, Once Upon a Mattress. Um, and, uh, and they grew up doing theater in a small town in Iowa called West Union. And uh, so inevitably, when they got married, they wanted to get the heck out of there. And like I said, my dad was, uh, was educated in computers and software engineering. And, uh, and there was a job at, you know, at Motorola at the big plant down there uh, in the Phoenix area. And so they moved when my mom was pregnant with me. And uh, I was born in, like I said, in sort of crummy Scottsdale when they had first gotten there. And then uh, they've all kind of lived in the, all in the suburbs of Phoenix. I grew up mostly around the Mesa Chandler area more than anywhere else for those folks in the southwest who know that area including casey likes because oddly enough my mom and his mom were both in educate in music education in the valley of of uh, arizona wow. each other. but there's <clears throat> 20 years between us so we <laughs> never worked but together i moved away before he was even born uh to go to school but um i yeah i grew up in in the in, in arizona and they have done community theater. Both my dad and my mom have done community theater in the area, you know, sort of my whole life and as long as I can remember. And of course, that meant that growing up, I wanted nothing to do with it. I thought it was cheesy. I thought it was hokey. I was not interested in theater at all. Uh, I was mostly interested in music. I, I, I played the trumpet from fifth grade and wanted to be a serious musician, really liked jazz, especially in symphonic music. Grew up worshiping John Williams and Alan Silvestri and James Horner and these guys who wrote these incredible, uh, you know, musical uh, symphonic scores, uh, all the way back to Eric Wolfgang Korngold and uh, you know all the way forward to now Zimmerman and these guys who uh, still write these. I mean, Silvestri's still writing all the Avengers scores and, and mm-hmm. putting putting out this amazing music. But that was where my heart was. I, I hadn't really taken a voice lesson or done any any sort of major performing. Uh, before I went to college. And then I started my undergrad at Northern Arizona University, basically because I stumbled into a vocal scholarship when I was in choir and auditioned for it. And I was like, well, I guess I have to be a music major. So I'll, I'll be a music education major and follow in my mom's footsteps and have my high school choir and then sing my jazz music on the side and play my jazz music on the side. Huh. Um, and then I got with a voice teacher for the first time uh, my freshman year who was sort of like, hey, you know, if you really wanted to do this, you probably can. You just have to decide that you want to, <laughs> you know. And he was the first person to put a, an operatic recording in my hands, uh, which was actually La Boheme, which is the poster right behind me that you can see. And I loved it. I fell in love with the, with the music of Puccini and with that operatic world. Uh, in so many ways, it sort of scratched the same itches that jazz does as far as needing to have an Olympian-level uh, knowledge of, of the voice and of the music and of the output um, to be able to hold your own is like top, top, top level of skill, uh, which is kind of what appealed to me about jazz. And, and um, so I, you know, I was into that and I started consuming operatic music and scores and recorded um, soundtracks and things like that. Uh, at a voracious level and took voice lessons and switched my major to be vocal performance. So you always, you always, you were focusing on opera pretty exclusively early on. Yeah. I mean, I, so my education was certainly focused in order to pay for school. I, as a freshman also kind of stumbled into working at a, at a, a house that was at the time called Canyon Moon Theater. Um, uh, no, it was called Oak Creek Canyon Theater, which was down in Sedona. And then it switched to Canyon Theater. And I, I did um, a Grand Night for Singing there, which is a Rodgers and Hammerstein review, um, and did all of you know all the big tunes of of uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein in that thing. And then, consequently, they brought me back. I think for eight or nine more shows. I did You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown there. I did a, a '60s jukebox musical called Suds there. I did um, uh, Side by Side by Sondheim, so sang a whole bunch of Sondheim music. Um, I, I just got to do a whole bunch of really fun, amazing music theater shows professionally at a small black box theater sort of by night as I was learning to sing operatically. 
and at the time I, I was like, oh yeah, this is fine for, for earning bread, but it wasn't necessarily what I was aiming at. Um, what I have since realized is that, um, the music theater community and the people that work in music theater are actually my tribe. After many, uh, you know, I suppose half a dozen years after I, I, uh, got my degrees and went out and was doing both things, doing both opera and uh, music theater, both professionally kind of bouncing back and forth. I realized that the music theater world was sort of more my, my happy place and, uh, and where I wanted to be. So that's kind of when I, I shifted in that direction. But were you, so I guess then are you, well, where, where did all the, the, all the opera credits come in? Cause if you're shifting back you find your tribe there with theater then, but like legitimately, I only read maybe half of your opera credits. So, so early on, uh, um, I, I did my undergrad and graduated in 2003 with my undergrad, no, 2004 with my undergrad and then went straight through and got my master's in 2006. And at the sum, in the summer times was when I was doing professional opera stuff with that. So, um, but right after I finished my undergrad is when I went to San Francisco and did the Merrill Young Artist Program for the San Francisco Opera. Um, and I was working uh, in the greater Chicagoland area, doing a bunch of little things there as well. Um, and then kind of filling in the gaps with, with music theater gigs, because the way that the opera company uh, uh, business works is oftentimes a year or two or even three ahead of time, you're scheduled out for things. And so then I knew what my windows were, where I could shoehorn in a, a music theater gig to keep paying the bills. Wait, so that's interesting. So I... I... I would have, I know very little about opera world and I would have assumed that given, I guess the additional vocal demands, okay, maybe I'm making so many assumptions here that opera is more vocally demanding than musical theater, who knows? But I would have assumed that it would have been as lucrative, if not more so, especially if you're getting asked to travel all over the world and do these great, these great performances, but it doesn't sound like that was the case. Well, I think, you know, there's a lot to unpack in that question. <laughs> <laughs> and as you say, it's, um, it's one of those things that, that takes a, a little bit of knowledge of, of both things. And, um, in music theater and in opera, both at the entry level, build, you know, paying your bills, doing the entry level of opera or doing the entry level of music theater is a challenge. Um, and so working like a dog is the answer. It means never stopping, right? Um, at the top levels, you know, hopefully we're at a place where we can support a family and do those things uh, in both the opera and the music theater world. But everybody's crying poor and has been for decades, um, you know, as far as like our audience is drying up and, and, various things. And I've been very lucky to, to get a few lucrative gigs in both worlds, but, um, you know, the, the grand scheme of things or the, the true picture is that the, the working opera singer, uh, and the working music theater singer often have to take jobs that are perhaps, uh, slightly less lucrative than we would wish, uh, just in order to be able to, to get through to the next thing. Um, and I, you know, I, I'm like I said, I'm very lucky. I have gotten to to pretty much pay my bills, being a professional singer for over 20 years, whether it's an opera or music theater, with the exception of COVID, because we all lost gigs on that one. Um, but you know, I, I I had a I had a building career in the opera world, and I was like I said, sort of filling in the gaps with music theater, and then. Um, the sort of main turning point came when I auditioned for the uh, the Networks Beauty and the Beast tour that went out in 2010. Yeah. I, I booked that. And in order to take that, I had to lose uh, a Guillermo, a Don Giovanni, uh, a couple of big leads that were moving in the, again, increasing in visibility in the operatic world. But even all those gigs combined paid me less than a third of what I was going to earn being on that tour in music theater. And so it was one of those moments where I was like, okay, do I turn down the tour in order to be able to take these gigs that are more spread out and less money and have to fill in those gaps again? Um, or do I really switch my focus and, and decide to, to make a career and go uh, in, the, in the music theater world? And uh, ultimately opted, like I said, because my tribe 
my people um, are kind of in the music theater world, I, I opted to go out on that on that Beauty and the Beast tour. And, and some of my absolute closest friends are still from that experience. Uh, I wouldn't trade it for the world. That's so cool. I, I love that you were presented with this opportunity. I talk about the, the multiverse of decisions uh, within this all the time. And that people, like, if they turn down gigs or they take or take one gig over another, that it always leads you to where you are now, right? And and just in this multiverse somewhere, you're this big opera star that's still starving. But <laughs> but but hey, you know, it's it's a it's a whole different world. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, if if the multiverse includes every possibility, then yes, I'm absolutely an opera star in one version of it. <laughs> absolutely. As I guess by that logic, I am too. For <laughs> Correct. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Oh gosh, I mean, you're actually a a, a bit of. Um, I mean, it's too late for me to like, and, and never too late. But I was saying, like, I've always had trouble, really, bring bringing this to me for a second. Um, as a baritone, I've always found it hard to find things to really d sink my teeth into because I I'm I don't you know the the bass parts are okay, but there there's not a lot of it, and the tenor parts they hurt. You can't maintain that eight shows a week so like finding a really good baritone role it, it's really tough it's tricky man it's tricky and i i feel for you i i have uh you know i, I studied as a quote-unquote cavalier young, or a young cavalier baritone uh doing the barber seville and doing you know um singing toreador for every out jump out from carmen you know what i mean doing the big tunes just like uh, you sing some enchanted evening or or you know um oh what a beautiful morning or those big baritone r h shows yeah soliloquy right and so i was with you man i i i was feeling solidly in the baritone world uh when i was doing that that uh, networks tour that that beating the beast and singing uh gaston eight times a week was interesting because it does go down into the basement after being up in the rafters and because I am also a bit of a jerk and a bit of a show off, I would like to throw in some high notes for fun, you know, because I love those guys that would do it in the operatic world. And I always found that exciting. And so when Seth um, Wenig, who was the head of networks at the time, and I think still is an executive producer over there, uh, came to our opening party for, for uh, Beauty and the Beast, that was when he was... He pulled me aside kind of and was like, you know, we're doing this Les Mis uh, thing that's coming out. He's like, you really should take a look at it. I was like, man, I would love to sing an Angeras. I would love to be in the show in any way, shape or form if you if you want to involve me. And he was like, no, 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 no. Valjean. Look at Valjean. And I went, wow. nope. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I <was> like, okay, <laughs> I'll try. All so, right. Yeah, exactly. So the next day after having, you know, been up until all odd hours uh, having. Which is great for your voice. Right, exactly. A grand time with everyone. You bet your bottom dollar I had that Les Mis score uh, pulled up on my iPad trying to figure out how I could get that next whole step, step and a half that I would have to have to be able to do that. We're going to be right back. I came out of school with a very solid A flat and an A natural most days a few times. And in order to do Valjean, you know, you got to have a B flat all day long and, and three or four big B naturals a day to be able to, to really figure that out. Um, so then we're talking stepping into the heroic tenor rep, right? I mean, from an operatic standpoint, you're kind of shifting and you're figuring out, okay, what do I have to do to, to make that work? And, um, you know, I could really go down the rabbit hole of, of technique and, and uh, you know, conserving and being, you know, being careful in the ways that you have to, to be able to do things eight shows a week or, or be able to sell, uh, these parts. But, you know, I would say that, um, 40, 50 years ago, it, it would be a, a very different beast for me to try and move into the, the tenor repertoire. You know, when these things came out in the eighties, personal body miking was at in its infancy. Uh, and a lot of a lot of shows didn't have miking at all, and of course the operatic world thought it was a joke. So um, having you had to be able to sing loud, people were screaming in these shows, right? Especially in Les Mis and and Phantom. But the whole landscape of that has shifted because of uh, sound design and the way that 
the the whole theater scene has shifted as far as like the way speakers work and the way personal amplification works. And so I think vocal technique has had to shift as well. Um, and the truth is, in order to be able to make those things happen, you you have to change how how loud you sing at the at the very you know at the very most basic right. like this is my color palette to draw from as far as this is the softest note I can sing sustainably and this is the loudest note I can sing sustainably. In the operatic world, you're using like this range of your volume, right? Much smaller. It's the top 30, 40% of that. In music theater now, you're using mostly the bottom 30 to 40, even 50%. Like maybe you get a couple of big rambunctious high notes, but you're going to piss off your sound designer if you do that too many times. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you can't use the lowest stuff either because again, you know, it's right here and they're, they're going to be unhappy having to jack you up to, to sing that stuff. So unless it's bring him home, in which case you're singing, you know, in most of it, you're hardly singing any louder than, than your pianissimo version of that. Um, and that's what it takes when, when, when it actually comes down to it, to be able to sing those roles where you have to have a low F You'll wear a different chain for uh, for Javert, and then also high B natural. Two, four, six, oh, you can't do that with full voice and Jesus. full freaking range. You know what I mean? Yeah. You, you have to you have to be singing at sixty percent of your volume and no louder, otherwise you're gonna blow it out. Like exactly what you were talking about with finding a good baritone stuff, man. If you're singing soliloquy you've got a, a top G and that's it, then yeah, you can really, you know, go in there and, and use some muscle, but it's just not, it's not available the same way if you're doing, uh, if you're doing like this. I wish I was trained enough to maintain a conversation with you technically when it comes to this kind of thing. Cause I'd love diving into, into this, into this world. And I, I, that's one of my only regrets in life is not continuing with really any instrument and learning to read music fluently and and whatnot well, but i'm not trying to proselytize for a studio i'm not building a studio here but i'm always happy to get behind the piano with somebody and just chunk through some stuff and tell you what i think about what you're doing and like maybe give you a couple little things that can help you out so anytime brother let's get together doesn't I have appreciate to, it doesn't have to be on the podcast but it can be if you want to <laughs> i just need to, i need to get some good solid uh uh high baritone karaoke songs that's yeah correct yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's shift over uh to back to the future of course um i've seen it several times because i just love the show i'm so uh, glad to hear that yeah it's so good and and when I first saw, I first saw you and I was like, oh man, that guy, I can see why he was cast. Like he looks just like Biff Tannen. And then you opened your mouth and I'm like, oh, that's why he was cast. Cause he could really sing. And, and I mean, do you get that a lot? Because I feel like you do have a similar sort of body structure and, and, you know, hair color and whatnot to the original, to the original Biff. Uh, so, I mean, do you hear that a lot? Oh yeah. Yeah. I, 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 in the most flattering of ways, especially at the stage door, I hear all the time that that uh, that I'm making Tom Wilson proud, which I really hope is true. Um, I have the utmost respect for his work in the film and for the things that he and Bob Zemeckis and Bob Gale created when they did that did this whole thing originally and created this universe. Um, I grew up on those movies. I, I I told you a little bit, hinted at my age, so I am the right age for the person who wore out the videotape on the original one. I mean, literally yep. do every word. In fact, I remember recording it on TV and I watched it so many times that I had the freaking commercial breaks memorized. You know yep. what I mean? Like all of that. And I have visceral memories of the second and third one specifically coming out in, in theaters. And like, I, I'm not sure at what age you are, but um, I remember going to Pizza Hut and and buying the glasses from the from 2015 there was like four or five different ones you could collect and you had to, you know what I mean? Spend nine ninety nine, and you get the sunglasses and I had the whole set and I had the mm -hmm. poster, the poster on my wall of cars of the future from 2015. And I wanted a hoverboard more than I could <laughs> express. 
I, I, yeah, I'll be, I'll be 43 next month. So I'm yeah, right, I'm right, this year, so we're right, right there with you. And I, I, for a long time, legitimately after I saw Back to the Future 2, I was like, I'm going to invent a real hoverboard. Yeah. I, I gave this serious thought. <laughs> Correct. Correct. I'm yeah. like, I'm like, I'm like, I got to do is couple was electromagnets. Did we do? I'm like, that was, I'm just yeah. my stupid, whatever, you know, 10 year old yeah. brain or whatever it was at the time. I was like, you know what? I think, exactly. uh, I think I'm just going to ignore the laws of physics. I'm going to do this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I have been a devotee of this franchise and this intellectual, intellectual property for as long as I can remember. I mean, honest to God, my first big boy car purchase that I had to pay a car payment on was a 1999 black Toyota Tacoma 4x4 because of Marty McFly's truck. I mean, I love these movies. And so I knew going into the the process of this, even from the very second, from the very first callback, I went in and said, hey, thank you all so much for, for seeing me again. Thank you for the opportunity to get to do this in front of you again. I need you all to know that I have the utmost respect for what Aiden is doing on the West End because I'd seen it at that point. But my intention is to come in here with a much more Tom Wilson-y version of Biff because that's what I would want to see as mm -hmm. a fan of this franchise, as a fan of this original film and, and the follow-up uh, properties. I mean, the ride from from Universal Studios that I went on dozens yes. of times it and... I mean, that Biff is who I would want to see if I was going to see the show. And so I was very much clear, very clear with them. I said, look, I'm always happy to take a note. I'm interested in hearing y'all's input, but I want you to know what I'm aiming at, which is trying to do justice to what Tom Wilson did. Wow. Did they, did they say like, oh, okay, let's see it. Or were they like, was it a, a convincing conversation or were they, was it a like, okay. Well, I will say. We never, in in my hearing, ever got any notes from from uh, from John Rando or from Bob Gale or from anybody who was in the space to try and make it more like the film. Um, there were moments when Bob Gale would say, you know, Bob Zemeckis told Michael Fox this thing. You know, he would reflect some some notes that were given to try and give us. Um, some context of what the world was, but it was never like, uh, Hey, Hugh, remember Crispin does this thing. So make sure you're doing more Crispin. And it was never that. And I never right. got any, any direction to make it more like Tom. Um, but I do think that everybody who's in the room understands how important it is to the fandom and to the, the people who are devoted to this in a nearly religious fashion. Uh, how important it is to them that we do honor to uh, the original versions of these of these characters, and and I mean, like I said, I I it was what I wanted to it, what I would want to see as a person who came to this musical. So it's it's uh, it's about having those touchstones and those those memories that bring you right back to that nostalgia and that moment and that feeling that you had when you first saw the film. Right? It's like, oh, that's the world. That's where we are. I remember that thing, and that's that's. Yeah more than anything else i think oh i i think it i think it it works it works really well um and i mean you you mentioned like you know tom wilson tom thomas f wilson was the original biff and and didn't he and chris lloyd and and michael j fox and even leah leah thompson too they came to opening right weren't the four of them there a whole bunch of folks were in opening i, I didn't meet tom so i don't know whether he was there or not um i think uh you know there is no doubt that the the people who have been associated with this franchise for a long time feel a very close connection to it. One of the things that Bob Gale said to us uh, on our first rehearsal was, you know, this has been a, a, a thing that he has cherished and honored and uh, sort of been a steward of from its inception. And, um, and, he said, you know, you all are now a part of the Back to the Future family. And that is yeah. much how it feels. And when we have met anybody who's been associated all the way through, I mean, I got to spend half an hour chatting with Huey Lewis, which just lose my mind. I literally cried all over him. <laughs> Alan Silvestri and these people who have been potentially peripheral to what was a film are part of this family in a way that very much feels connected. 
So it was, you know, it was lovely to get to hold Leah Thompson's hands and just say, oh my gosh, you know, I, I have so, I owe you so much as an actor and as a, as a, uh, as a performer and now getting to make my Broadway principal debut in a, in a thing that you created. It's just, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing. And you can feel the camaraderie and the companionship that, that comes from all those people. It's nice to know that Bob Gale was so involved. Uh, for those for those who don't know, Bob Gale, Bob Gale and Bob Robert Zemeckis, you know, created the original Back to the Future. Uh, so it, it's I think Bob Gale doesn't get enough recognition for his work on the film well, because it was it was originally his concept. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, the, the Bobs sort of created it together, but it was definitely uh, it was Bob Gale's baby. Yeah, uh, certainly something that he. Uh, based on a very specific experience in his life of, of, I mean, he'll tell you the, he's a storyteller, so he'll tell you the whole story. I'm, you can look it up online too, but it's essentially like finding an old yearbook with his dad in it that, that his dad was the class president and he had no idea that his father was the high school class president. And that made him extrapolate, like, if I met my father, because he went to the same high school that his father had gone to, if I'd met my, he was like, I hated my class president. If I'd met my father, who was the class president, would I have hated my dad? And that sort of spun out into this, what if he goes back in time and met his father? Um, so it was definitely Bob Gale's baby from the beginning. It is Bob Gale's universe in many, many ways. And Bob Zemeckis, you know, shaped the whole thing that we saw in the film for sure. And um, has given all of us such amazing... Uh, feedback and blessings every time we've met him. He's been he's been really really great. But Bob Gale has been was in the rehearsal process every day, and he he's credited as the book writer. So the words are his, and he is you know he's very very much uh, interwoven into every moment that that we have on stage. You know what's really what's really cool about uh, the musical too is that the book. Um, pretty much other than you know changing the the source of death um from where the plutonium came from um it pretty much holds up yeah uh uh like there's it, it was just a wholesome family movie which is which i was reading too is why spielberg really 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 loved it because it was still at the 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 sci-fi the sci aside it's still a coming of age story it's a wholesome family movie where like you're, you're really you really care about all of the characters and you want yeah. it to you want them to win yeah i think there are some there are some very universal themes um one of the things that's so brilliant about what bob gale does is he is a he's a voracious film historian he knows better than just about anybody of his generation the films of his time and before and films that are coming out as well. And he's, you know, he's actually very well regarded within the, uh, the sort of copyright and uh, infringement um, film world for being a consultation person on film history. And like, if somebody comes forward and says, oh, that person has copied my idea, Bob Gale is always one of the first people who is a material witness in those situations to say, ah, now that happened way back in this film in 1942. And, and then in 1922, there was that film, which that film was copying it. You know what I mean? Like that wasn't your idea and it wasn't his idea. It's all, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's all, it all harkens back. So he's got this incredible built-in knowledge of the way film works and, and storytelling in general. And I think there are some universal themes of the David and Goliath story, of, of man versus God in the, the universality of time and having to play against the clock. Um, as you say, the coming of age story is also a universal thing. And then also bringing about the specificity of America in the 1980s and America in the 1950s and the way that reflects on where we are and who we are today. And, um, you know, I, it is, like you said, it's something that that I think is pretty universal within our culture and, and has become ubiquitous as well. It's, there's homage to Back to the Future in so many modern um, films and TV. And, you know, I feel like you can hardly find a, a comedy or, or a, an adventure tale that doesn't in some way reference something that happened in that film. And that film referenced things before it in the same way. And it's, it's part of the fabric of our, of our storytelling.
I think it normalized time travel too in a, in a very wholesome way, right? It, it made sci-fi a little more cool. 100%. Yeah, one of the reasons I think that they had such a hard time selling this film to any studio at the time was that before Back to the Future in some ways, uh, or when they were trying to sell it, sci-fi was either space opera in Star Wars or it was a joke. Mm. Like trying to find the mixture of comedy and uh, science fiction taken in a serious-ish way, uh, you, you don't see that very much before Back to the Future. It, it, like you said, it normalized it, but it also made it um, feel truthful instead of Flash Gordon cheesy and, and you know what I mean, that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I guess talking about sci-fi and illusions and magic, let's spill all the secrets of the car. <laughs> well, because oh my god yeah that, that is so car, cool that the car is the true uh star i mean forgive me casey and roger i love you guys and you know i have the utmost respect for your work um but when i went and saw it in the west end i saw it with roger and i saw it with uh the original i saw it with you i saw it with the original guys uh two or three years ago three years ago two uh three summers ago um I went there and I went, oh, I've got a better chance at booking this than I have ever had at anything because people are going to come to see the car. Because yep. it's the car. It's the time machine. <laughs> and it flies. And, and it, it moves. Flies. And, and it I mean, like, so Chris Fisher did the uh, did the illusions for the <clears throat> for the show for Back to the Future. Yeah. And he also did he also did the uh, illusions for Harry Potter and the Cursed Child just to give you right. a, uh, give everyone a little comparison of how good this is. Right. Uh, he's a member of the Magic Circle. And I mean, Jesus, like everything in the show, it's it just so well done. It fits because when I first heard oh, Back to the Future, the musical. All right, qu question mark. Yeah. I said, how are they going to do that? And I am so glad they did because it it it's it's phenomenal. Obviously, you can't you can't make a car actually go 88 miles per hour on a Broadway stage, but I'm not going to spoil how it how it's done because you got to go see it. But uh, do you know how everything works? Are you allowed to know? And like, are you contractually not allowed to say anything? <laughs> well, so uh, it's not like I've signed an NDA. But uh, for the for the sake of my um, my interest in having people come and have an experience in live theater, which is, <laughs> I mean, that's my livelihood, and that's what I try to do. You know, I will say you have to come and see it to experience it. Um, as you say, it's it's an extraordinary thing, and Chris Fisher is is an incredible, incredible talent and and a genius of a man, and has done some things that when you actually know how they go, you're like, oh, of course that's what it is. But it's all about, you know, and any really brilliant piece of magic in its simplest form is actually pretty simple misdirection, right? Um, and Chris is the kind of person who's such a nerd about it that on his days off, he would literally go find the closest, uh, close magic specialist and go watch their show on his day, you know, he's, he loves magic. And so being involved with somebody who is that spectacular about, it's about planning, right? It's about knowing exactly where to direct someone's attention and at, at what moment you can do the switch so that the thing that you're supposed to be looking at, you're not looking at, and the thing that you're not supposed to be looking at can be, uh, you know, managed. Um, and it, it, it really is mechanics. It's about going through it over and over and over and over again. The, the few, I, I didn't get to work with him on all of the magic tricks, but I do have a couple of things that I'm very heavily involved in. And we got multiple hours of, well, maybe you hold the thing in just this way with these fingers to make sure that you get this moment happening and the, this glints this way and that we catch it in the light this way and then make sure that you move in this direction so that you can do the switch this, you know what I mean? It's that kind of really, really precise sleight of hand things that anybody beyond the 10th row, there's no way they would catch if I screw it up. But to Chris, it is the art of it that makes it, you know, wonderful. We're gonna be right back. 
Schuyler, who was our, uh, who's also a resident over at um, Harry Potter, uh, was also incredibly integral in, in helping me with just some of the, the most basic, like, this is the angle, these are the audience, this is the way you have to hold your hand to make sure that you're getting exactly what, what we're looking for and, and really practicing it and making it work. And I'm no magician by any stretch of the imagination. I have no experience with card tricks other than what my grandpa showed me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. I'm, not a, I'm not a master of sleight of hand in any way, shape, or form. But, um, but the stuff that these guys helped me with made me feel confident in those in those ways. And I think that's the other part of it, right? Is like, we have to not, you have to not be able to see in our eyes, okay, here comes the magic. You know what I mean? It just has to be part of what we do. You can't and look terrified. Uh, right, exactly. Like giving away, like whatever you do, don't look over there. You know what I mean? Um, but so much of it is uh, right up through the old vaudevillian tradition of look over here, look over here. And you know, it all comes back to three card Monty in its own way. <laughs> no, it, it is, it is brilliant. And I, I just love everything about it. And, uh, uh, so as we come to a close here, I want to do uh five quick back to the future movie trivia questions. See how oh, much you God. know. All right. See how much you know, Mr. Mr. War out the VHS tape. I, Let's look, see. I, I mean, I'm pretty confident right now, but now I'm second guessing myself. I'm starting to sweat. <laughs> it's okay okay really easy one should be easy what year number one what year was the movie released no i know it's 1985 <laughs> i was like no shit. all right ding ding number one i was like no way no way he doesn't know that okay uh what was marty mcfly's original last name before the script was finalized oh marty marty i don't know the answer to this i've never read i've never read uh an earlier version of the script mcdermott marty mcdermott McDermott? Yes, McDermott. M-C-D-O-R-M-O-T-T. McDermott? McDermott? Good change. Yeah, good, good change. Good change. <laughs> um, also, Back to the Future... Okay, number three. Back to the Future was almost not the name of the movie. What did the producers want it to be called? Oh, the producers wanted it to be called, like, Dr. Brown's Time Machine or something like that. There was some... There was some well, the original version in, in, uh, that Bob wanted to be was like Dr. Brown and his time machine or something like that. And then the producers were wanting to call it something crazy. Spaceman from Pluto. Spaceman from, yes, yes, yes. It was a reference to the, to the Spaceman from Pluto or whatever it was. Yeah. Yeah, there's this memo that's out there on the internet uh, that's like, the producer was like, you need to call it Space Ram from Pluto, and on this page, this page, and this page, change this dialogue, so Marty says this, and it, it would have justified the whole thing. But it would have been the worst choice ever, because that just doesn't, that doesn't hit. And it doesn't, right. it's so not the thing. It's not the thing no. that it is. No. Um, you, you mentioned that the script had a hard time getting picked up by studios, getting greenlit. Do you know how many times the script was rejected? This is question four. Oh, gosh. Um, I know that they shopped it around to everyone. I know that Disney didn't like it because it wasn't family friendly enough. Yep. I know that Universal originally uh, said no. And then uh, they shopped it over to some somebody else who the producer liked it. And then the producer left and went to Universal and took the script back to Universal with them. But it was, I, I have to say, it was at least six, right? There were a lot. 44. <laughs> So it was years and years, years yeah. and years of being rejected. 44 times it got rejected. Wow. And then it got made. Yeah. And, All and, right. I mean, and that's with Steven Spielberg giving his stamp of approval at the time. Too. Right. He was a young Spielberg, though. Like, he didn't yeah, have the yeah, reputation he has now. Was, yeah, but still a hot commodity at the time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, last question then. Um, 44, man. Insane. Um, okay, and the first... First act scene where Marty's band, the Pinheads, are auditioning for the high school battle of the bands contest. Do you know who plays the school teacher who cut the band short, announcing, "Hold it, fellas! I'm afraid you're just too darn loud." <laughs> yes, of course I know who that was. I had to. I talked to him for a half an hour. It's Huey Lewis, and I. There you go. I, I love that moment, and I love that that's referenced. Uh, incidentally, one of Bob Gale's first gifts to me was the. Um, I don't know if you've seen, there's a whole series of books that have been written by a fellow over in England 
that are the Shakespearean versions of like Shakespeare, uh, uh, Shakespearean Star Wars and Shakespearean Back to the Future. It's like as it's all written in iambic pentameter as though the script were uh, a Shakespeare thing. Have you seen these no things? No kidding. You know talking about you got to no. check it. I think it's called Get the Back to the Future. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I want, One I of, want to. Yeah, you have to look at it. One of my favorite things in that is that the teacher who is the Huey Lewis, uh, who is played by Huey Lewis, who is the character in that scene. So it's a, a scene by scene reflection of the movie. And all of the things that that teacher says are all references to Huey Lewis's songs. So like every third line is a, is a, a title of one of Huey Lewis's songs. It's, it's freaking brilliant. It's, I, I mean, I'm such a huge fan of Huey Lewis's work and I, I also wore out sports and picture this and, and four, uh, as a kid, they were audio tapes at the time. Um, cassette uh, tapes as one cassette tapes. Correct. Yeah. And, uh, so getting to, getting to talk to him was just, just amazing. But, but yeah, listening to, uh, Huey Lewis say, I'm, I'm afraid you're just too darn loud. I mean, that's like iconic because he's a rock, rock singer from one of the loudest rock bands at the time. Oh, I know. I love that. All right. Um, so now my standard closing questions. I have, I normally have three that I use to wrap up every episode. I just want to add, or I guess it's not standard, um, but I wanted to wrap up real quick in your bio on the website. You mentioned thanks to A and PP. Do you want to talk, talk about who they are? Yeah. A is Alexander. That's my son. who's 11. And he is my puzzle piece, which is Nicole. That's my wife. Oh, I love it. All right. So now the questions I ask everyone to wrap up. Number one, what motivates you? Uh, you know, I, I am a spiritual person. I grew up in the Christian faith. And so there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of desire to be of service and desire to be, um, uh, of good to humanity in theater. There's a sense of communion and community that happens between the actors and between the actors and the audience that I find to be unique in, uh, in that particular, um, art form. I don't, I don't know any other art form that does it in that way uh, other than live theater. Um, uh, that motivates me hugely. Uh, I also like to choose joy and, and spread light and find ways to make people around me and myself happy and, uh, and find, find ways to aspire to be inspired. Uh, that's a huge motivator. Um, I think all that and, and a good nap. <laughs> my other biggest motivator just motivating to get to that nap <laughs> yes exactly right yeah at, at, at our age yeah that's that's about <laughs> all you can ask for <laughs> all right so uh next question then what advice would you give to your younger self and younger people listening now starting out down a similar path yeah sure um i would say the biggest piece of advice that i would give is to um find your voice and, uh, and understand your brand and your motivation and the things that you want to do. Uh, meaning like, what is the kind of work that you want to do? What is the kind of person that you want to be? Um, who, you know, so many young people, uh, and myself included, were probably more interested in perhaps celebrity and fame and, and getting to do the thing that we find so glamorous. And, uh, once you're in the thick of it, you realize um, that that's a whole lot different than you might have thought it was. And so you have to decide, you have to decide why you're actually doing this if you want to continue with it. And for me, the best thing to do is to chase the art and to be able to make something that is greater than the sum of its parts. Um, I, I bring a lot of things to the table as far as experience and, and tools. Uh, with regards to singing and with regards to experience and acting and those kinds of things. Um, but I am hopeful that every project that I get to do uh, is better than what I could do on my own because of the people that are around me and because of what the audience brings and because of being in that communal experience that I was talking about earlier. Oh, that's great. So that's what it is. It's finding that thing for yourself. Last question then. If you could only see one show for the rest of your life, but you can see it as many times as you want, what would you see? That's a toughie. I mean, so I've been very lucky to get to do Sweeney Todd a couple of times, and uh, I've always played Anthony, but 
that was one of those that I was like, I could be in this show forever. Uh, I, th I think the music is some of the best music that has ever been written. I think the, the book is fabulously tight. I think it's robust enough to, to hold many different choices and many different viewpoints and still be an incredible, incredible piece of theater that, uh, that ticks all the boxes for me. So I think if there was one that I had to, <laughs> had to choose at the expense of all others, it would probably be that one. Great. Where can we find you online on the social medias? <laughs> well, uh, I'm on Instagram uh, more than any other place, but I've just started a TikTok channel as well. Um, you can follow me at N and then the number eight, Hackman with two N's. Uh, that's, that's my real account, Nate Hackman. Um, anybody else is just an impersonator and uh, follow them too if you like, but don't expect <laughs> <laughs> you don't get the same quality. One of the, one of the, things, <laughs> one of the things I really liked, I was watching um, one of your reels uh, last night to, to prep for this, and you did a duet with an acapella group singing um, Beauty and the Beast. Or, yeah. Yeah. So so you were you were singing as Gaston with the acapella. I was like, as an acapella nerd, I really appreciated that. <laughs> oh, I, I grew up on that stuff too. I told you I'm a jazz guy. My, yeah. My I love all that acapella stuff, and and uh, Jake Odemark has a whole bunch of stuff that he does really great. And T three, those are good; those guys are good friends of mine, and their stuff is awesome. Um, I'm a I'm a big big fan of of the vocal uh, instrument in general, and so I'm I'm always uh, interested in collaborating and supporting those people. Yeah, uh, yes, great. I am. <laughs> I'm doing, doing awesome. It's been awesome, man. It's was... been great. I think you just shut down. <laughs> <laughs> it hit the top of the hour and boom, I ran out of battery. Uh, no, you can find me online as well. I'm on Threads, Instagram, and and Facebook, uh, and TikTok. Oh, I got to update this. Yeah, Threads, Instagram, uh, TikTok, Facebook. Um, I'm, I threw X out because, you know, why not? And Nate Hackman, thanks so much. I really enjoyed this chat. It's been a pleasure, my friend. Me too. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot -E 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 org because only together we rise.